0: Good morning, everybody, and a welcome to a Monday Breakfast on 3CR. hope everyone had a great weekend, whatever you may have gotten up to. And, you know, December is a good time of year, I think. Um, You know, a bit overplayed. There's a lot of people that um sort of, you know, wishing you all these things about your month and whatever, which, you know, take that as it may. I think that having summer and, you know, it's a chance to kind of, slow down a little bit and you know hit the beach or wherever you like to go. It's a, it's a nice time of year. Mm. Good morning to you, Jackson.
1: Uh, good morning. I think it can also be a very stressful time of year for people. There's a lot of pressure to spend a lot of money from a lot of different people. quarters, whether that's... Oh, good morning. Uh, good morning, James. Thanks for uh, letting me join you on the show. And uh, my name is Jackson. I was just talking briefly about the pressure for to spend during Christmas time. Mm. I think a lot of people feel that quite intensely. There's a lot of pressure to... You know it's great, yeah, to catch up with family and um, spend time, slow down. Um, if you have that opportunity, you know, with your working life or whatever you're doing. But there is a lot of um, societal, you know, every time you turn on the television, there's uh, ads about what you should be buying from Amazon or Kmart, you know, or Coles. And uh, you know, I was just, uh, I was reading over the weekend that you know, a study done recently by the Salvation Army suggests that three million Australians request uh, help from charities at this time of the year, um, which is a significant number. Um, to help with power bills or putting food on the table, things like that. So, it's worth remembering, you know, in the endless ream of surprise secret Santas and Kris Kringle's and work parties and you know all these things you're supposed to stump up twenty and thirty and forty bucks for. That can be a real pressure on people um, at all ages. So, that's actually something. I also don't think what it's, what's what Christmas is about myself. I wanted to talk about this morning as well
0: was. Uh, yesterday walking through the city and one of the really stark things that uh, I always think about, particularly walking around the Collins Street kind of area, is this, you know, the shops there are kind of done up, is really like an, you know, opulence of wealth is sort of signified through a lot of the shops there Um, and, you know, a lot of the kind of hijacking of art and culture and stuff for these kind of really high-end fashion markets Mm. and things like that. And on the other hand, it is one of the areas where there is the most amount of homeless people and um it, it is really just a stark reality of the disgustingness of, you know, what the capitalist system sort of brings forward, where you have people who are, you know, equal people walking side by side who are in no way living an equal life. And I think that, like you said, that the kind of... um Commercialization of this time of year certainly does emphasise those things a lot. Mm, yeah, I completely agree. Well, um, maybe we'll just give the listeners a bit of a rundown of what's on the show this morning.
1: Yeah, and, um, at quarter past seven, we've got Louise Crawford, who's the national campaign organiser for the Labor Environmental Action Network, or LEAN, as they are known. And obviously, it's just been the ALP National Conference in Adelaide this weekend. I think it continues today for the last day. So we're just going to have a chat with them, with Louise, I should say, about uh, how successful LEAN have been in pushing some significant uh, significant overhaul of in, uh, Labor's environmental and energy policies uh, on the um, optimistic uh, thought that there may be a, a Labor government at the, at the next federal election and what what the environmental policy would look like, but also it would be interesting to talk to Louise just about the conference in general There's obviously been a few flashpoints over the weekend with um protesters uh, interrupting shortened speech about Adani, uh, which they should um you know obviously have a position on and um also you know, asylum seekers and the raising of the new start allowance have been uh, issues that have been discussed um, or are yet to be discussed so that 's a quarter past seven uh, at seven thirty we 've got. Uh, kind of going from one angle to the other, from parliamentary politics to youth activism, uh, we've got uh, Leo uh, Sir, uh, Sir Gorcevic, uh who's coming in. He's from the Youth Action Climate Coalition, also Socialist Alliance, and he has written some good pieces for Green Left Weekly about uh, the student uh, strike for climate action on November 30th and just uh, the environmental movement in general and uh, the importance of activism. So we'll have a chat with Leo about that. Uh, We've got Over the Wall, of course, our regular program, and they're going to be
0: talking about uh, Christmas and the Catholic Church, Mm. which will be interesting. Um, And after that, we've got uh, Zora Simic, who's going to be talking about um, a review that um, they've written for the Australian Book Review, looking at Jermaine Greer's, um, a book about Jermaine Greer's life, and also um, about Anne Summers. And rounding out the program, we have, um, friend of the show, Lizzie O'Shea, coming, um, will be on to talk about, uh, suppression orders and sort of, you know, you know, what, what a suppression order is and how they are kind of used by the court system. So it's a pretty jam-packed show. Um, and I guess to let listeners know as well, we've, uh, there's two more shows, I think for one more show for the year two more, um, two over the kind of summer programming, um, Jackson and I won't be here live in the studio for those two shows, but uh, we'll be getting some content ready over the next couple of days, so um, do continue to listen on, on those days and listen to
1: 3CR all across your um, summer time. Mm. Yeah, we'll be playing some new content over the two weeks and also some of the highlights of our year in review so that should be fun yeah well um before we get into those uh
0: parts of the show perhaps we should get into uh, our first our last um live alternative news for the year
1: So today is the 17th of December, and the 17th of December is Red Umbrella Day. Uh, Red Umbrella Day is a day to end violence against sex workers, and here in Melbourne, uh, in St Kilda actually, red are A resource in health and education in the Victorian sex industry uh, Running an event on Inkerman Street uh, from 2 o'clock to 6 o'clock To highlight the need for action to end violence against sex workers The issues faced by sex workers often vary from region to region Due to different laws, social factors and cultural contexts But one common issue faced by all sex workers Is their vulnerability to and experiences of stigma, discrimination and violence so your involvement in this important day provides an opportunity to support and discuss the need for action to end violence against sex workers. And Red is asking everybody to join them at 10 Inkeman Street today, Monday, 17th December, from 2pm to support and raise awareness. Uh, so that's been an event that's been running for 15 years now. And I think it's a really timely reminder of uh, an industry that, you know, is a decent size here in Melbourne. We have, um, you know, thankfully some... You know, I, I think they could be improved, but we have uh, fairly um, good approaches legally to sex work here in here in Melbourne. Um, you know that you can do it legally, and uh, I, you know, I believe there's uh, some unions involved. And um, yeah, I think it's um, you know an industry that's run pretty well in Australia compared to other places. But that doesn't mean that uh, the industry is uh, free of this violence that this uh, Red Umbrella Day is highlighting. And It'd be a worthy thing to get down to St Kilda. If you live in the area or, you know, interested, I would implore you to get along. 10 Inkerman Street from 2 o'clock today. Um, Well, an event, uh, not an event, sorry, Uh, and something that I
0: wanted to talk about was, I think, you know, we've seemed to see an increase again of the kind of um, chatting about how uh, so many terror incidents have been you know foiled by the police and the um security companies and things like that Dan Andrews has mentioned that a number of times I think over the last um you know since the Burke Street incident uh you know it's difficult to know I guess because we're not privy to you know the information around these things um you know perhaps a cynical person might wonder how much of these we don't I guess we don't know not obviously not saying that any of it is made up but that the exaggeration of, I guess, we don't know to what extent these are, you know, kind of so-called thought kind of crimes or actually kind of like planned activities and things like that. Mm. Um, but I see in the Herald Sun today that um, they are talking up the rapid response squad of elite police armed with machine guns who will be on alert over Melbourne during the CB, in the CBD over Christmas time. This is a positive story that's being um presented in the Herald Sun. Uh, you know, that they'll be at Carols by Candlelight, New Year's Eve celebrations. Oh good. This uh you know, regardless of those um you know, what we say about, you know, foiling these kind of attempts, those those stories are they're being um, stopped well before this kind of, you know, before an, a unit like this would be used. It's being stopped within its kind of infancy, I guess. Mm. This is t- um, terrifying, I think. And, you know, these are events that, you know, a lot of um, people take their families to, children to. What, what kind, Do we want that kind of um response to see, you know children having to look at these, you know, really um, militarised police force at these events. Mm. How is this contributing to a positive mindset for people going to, you know, these events over this time? I'm not sure.
1: I remember 10 years ago, the first time I left Australia, being shocked by the level of armaments that police forces would carry overseas Mm. compared to Australian police forces. And, you know, I think it's... It's been a nice thing historically that our police have been lightly armed and and reticent to use their firearms. You know, we don't have the same culture of gun violence as some of our allies do. Mm -hmm. But the more you put heavy weapons into the hands of uh, individuals, the more chance there is they will use them. And I think, you know, similar to the outcry when the PSOs first arrived on our stations armed with revolvers after, I think it was three months of training they had before being uh, stationed by the value government. Mm. You just wonder, you know, these things get rolled out very quickly. There's an enormous pressure, gen- much of it generated by the Murdoch press, to beef up, you know, these armed forces and have all these, you know, various, you know, I've seen a lot of public order response, these black uh, kind of SUVs cruising around Footscray recently. Um, and they do, they, they look like military vehicles. Um, the, the, we saw, actually, the new uh, Pepper Guns, uh, the, the tag offenders, uh, with, with pepper pallets that both burn and mark them for later arrest used over the weekend at what, you know, appeared to be a youth brawl outside of a, a, a gig. Uh, so, uh, you know, the idea that these weapons will only be used to combat terrorists, and that is such a broad term as well, uh, I, I think is, is incorrect. And um, we're gonna, you know, if you, if you, if you give people the tools, they will use them, and I would hate to think, Uh, you know, a a wrong move or, you know, the rapid expansion of the police force means that there's, you know, a huge load on the training services. I don't, Mm. you know, I don't, I'm, I, it doesn't make me feel safe or comfortable having machine guns in the streets myself.
0: There's a podcast I've been listening to, which is called 16 Shots, which is about a, um, black man who was killed, um, by police in Chicago, um, quite a few years ago. Um, and, it's disturbing, uh, and also the latest season of Serial, which I uh, um, finished a week or so ago. Um, and, you know, the gun violence being so prevalent, um, you know, across all parts of American culture. Um, we know it, but, you know, when you hear it in the details of, of this kind of thing, um, you know, in, in light in these ways, it, it's still quite disturbing. And, uh, I, you know, fear that we are... Slowly moving towards that kind of thing Because the more that you, um, you know, one side Then I think that, you know, the more prevalence of other types of uh, violence Is, is going to become a part of that as well mm. Well, um, actually, uh, related to this um, There's a quick song I might just play a little bit of um, It's called Big Love, and uh, it's by the Black Eyed Peas, and actually talks about um, gun violence and, um, yeah, positive message, I guess, that Black Eyed Peas like to do.
1: Looking for a gift for the lefty in your life this Christmas?
2: 3CR has a range of publications, clothing, CDs, wine and other products available online or from the station.
3: New items include the 2019 How to Make Trouble and Influence People Diary, which features a radical event in Australian history for each day of the year, as well as stories and images covering Indigenous Australian resistance, strikes, street art, convict escapes, creative direct action, blockades, protests and occupations.
2: Also available is Fighting for Fighting for our lives: a collection of essays, photographs, and first-hand accounts about the squatting movements from around the world today. And on the fly, an anthology which features dozens of stories, poems, and songs originally produced by American hobos from the
4: 1870s to the 1940s.
1: Sale of these publications all help keep 3CR on air. For more information or to make a purchase, visit 3cr.org.au/shop.
2: Go to 3cr.org.au slash shop to buy online or drop into the station during business hours.
0: Welcome back to Monday Breakfast on 3CR. And it's good to hear that track seamlessly um, flowing from our discussion into um, their song, which is also about uh, Gun violence, The Black Iron Piece. And, uh, you know, I think while, you know, perhaps not quite a a radical um, band with politics, they do um, have a positive message often in their music, which is lovely for a Monday
1: morning. They've made some statements over the years, I think. It's always nice to get some um, creative affirmation of views that you uh, have yourself... It's nice to be supported in that way.
0: It is. And there
1: was a little announcement
0: there um, about the uh, 3CR shop. And we did mention, you know, it's not for everyone. Tune out if you're not interested about buying uh, gifts this time of year. But there are a number of, um, you know, books and T-shirts and uh, bags. Wine. or wine. Wine, yes. All Always a great gift. Great uh, things to buy for... Some of your friends or family or enemies, whatever you um, floats your boat, and um, you can yeah come in to the three CR studio or um, you can order online as well.
1: Unfortunately, we've been unable to get a hold of Louise. Perhaps she is recovering from the crazy times of the ALP National Conference. I understand it's quite a hullabaloo down there, so we are unable to have a chat with the Labor Environmental Action Network, which would have been good to chat to them because during uh, opposition leader Bill Shorten's speech uh, yesterday, about half a dozen protesters called on Labor to stop the Adani coal mine in Queensland and close the offshore processing centres in Manus Island and Nauru, and they were dragged off stage by security. Uh, some of the protesters were dressed in It's Time t-shirts, referencing... Hmm. Uh, former Labour Prime Minister Gough Whitlam, famous 1972 campaign slogan. Uh, they also carried a banner on stage that read, ALP, stop paying politics with people's lives, hashtag close the camps. Sadly, most of the party Facebook greeted this with booing and shouts mm-hmm. of where's security and the Sydney Morning Herald report that Mr Shorten quipped, I've waited as opposition leader for the next election for five years and two months, and if I've got to wait a couple more minutes, I will. He so dry. Another zinger from Bill. He also right said, there.
0: I know these people are well-intentioned, but the only people they are helping is the current government of Australia.
1: Don't really follow that logic there.
0: No, Um but it is... uh Interesting, as always, to, um, hear about the Labour Party conference. I think that every three years that it takes place, um, before the conference happen, happens, I think, you know, there's a lot of sort of optimism, chatter, yeah. yeah, chatter amongst, you know, the left, the left of the Labour Party and the left more broadly about, you know, what, what this may
1: what our mainstream party will achieve.
0: Yeah, what it may bring, and, you know, perhaps it will be... Maybe they'll join us on the radio. Yeah, well, perhaps there'll be a shift, you know, in some way, and um, it uh, sadly hasn't eventuated that way. A, a
1: classic example of that, the Fin Review uh, reporting uh, late or early this morning, I should say, Labor's national conference will not formally back calls from both business and community groups for an increase to the new start allowance, maintaining plans for a review, which I'm sure will be more expensive. The review than raising the new start allowance. That's obviously not true, but I'm sure it will be a reasonable investment. Uh, it says here that new start has been effectively frozen, apart from you know raising with inflation since the Keating government. Mm. So that is a a fair time in the past. Um Yeah, it's um it's it's deplorable. A, a I don't know if you ever tried living on New Start, but it is it is uh extremely difficult. Yeah,
0: and a number of um uh studies come out over the last kind of couple of years say that it is impossible to afford a house in any of the major cities in Australia on New Start. Uh one of the one of the policies that um Shorten did talk about was a uh, housing um mm-hmm. and uh, unfortunately i have to say that um uh, while i i did watch some of it over the weekend and have read some of the articles i can't say that i have um an in-depth kind of analysis of the actual policy like besides the the speeches made to look in depth at the policy but perhaps we will have a little look at that um and have a little and record some information we can uh share next week as, you know, we do, um, we will look to the election next year. But part of it is a $6.6 billion plan to subsidise rent for low and middle income earners. And, you know, there's a, I think a softening of the um, ideas around the um,
1: negative gearing kind of policy. There's been a lot of fear mongering from homeowners, lobby groups about the possibility of uh, changing negative gearing negative gear to collapse or send the economy into recession, you know, mm. and we all know that we are in the service of the economy and not the other way around, so. I think that, yeah, <clears throat> the negative
0: gearing is used in this really, it's also used in this kind of scaremongering way yeah. of of what it actually is, and it's actually, it's a very small part of the housing market, and I think that it would really have minimal effect on things at all, but it's also, you but know, it, the stats showing that it, it's not actually, yeah. it's a lot of, um, you know, middle income earners that have negative gearing housing but i think you what you can do is the way that negative gearing was originally intended is or you know what you can do is so if you own a house and you have it as a rental property in you know for periods of time where you are unable to get um, someone to rent it out or it's um, someone's broken their lease or anything like that then you, the the owner will not be out of pocket that's a perfectly legitimate thing i think for you know, investment market to do that. Just put regulations where you're able to do that for a period of time. That's all
1: needed to be done. Rather than do it forever and yeah. you know, use it as like a, a small to business that you yeah. deliberately run at a loss so that you lower your tax. Yep. Uh, and, you know, we saw reports released over the weekend. I was um, following some of Sally McManus' tweets about, you know, large companies you know, declaring, uh, you know, huge annual turnovers and, you know, significant profits and somehow paying no tax to the, you know, companies like Qantas and Glencore, you know, um, so it's a similar thing for wealthy individuals being able to leverage their outgoings so that they have no taxable income Mm. when they are pocketing it you know, huge amounts of money. And,
0: you know, let's look at the companies that are already paying no tax. And, you know, there's figures released last week, I think, of some of the the companies.
1: What the hell is a tax cut going to do? You know, this constant trumpeting of a business tax cut, many of the big, big big businesses are paying literally no tax, or
0: $1,000 over the year. If you uh, put a tax on those companies, even a small tax, then... The amount of wealth that that would generate for the Australian economy would be substantially, you know, would be huge. You could invest that in whatever you wanted to. Raising the new start allowance. Yeah. Yeah. Housing, public
1: housing, imagine that. You know, Mm. and this is, you know, when you compare this to the draconian and cruel. Uh, Robo debt scheme, with which, if it had have been effective, if 75% of those contested hadn't been reduced or rejected because they are illegal, and I think there's a large class action lawsuit being organised about this as well, mm. they would have only, you know, bought in. I think somewhere between three and four hundred million dollars, which, you know, it's a large amount of money, but from a government budget perspective, it's a drop in the ocean. And uh, that's if it wasn't wildly inaccurate, poorly conceived, poorly executed and send in some of the most uh, financially vulnerable members of our community into absolute panic. Um, so I think, you know, one of the things we were going to talk to um, the guest, Louise,
0: about was around the environmental policies. Mm-hmm. And the ABC um, article, just looking at, said that uh, Mr Shorten has announced Labor would create a new environmental protection agency mm-hmm. and reaffirmed the commitment to deliver 50% more renewable energy supply by 2030. He then goes on to talk about, um, you know, the increase in solar panels on homes without, um, any commitment around that. I think it's interesting. It still seems, I think the policy is still less than what the Victorian state government has, you know, is is trying to do and has attempted to do. Uh, you know, the state government is more or less trying to get solar panels on almost every home in the state, which, I think is, you know, it's great. It's, um, you know, they're offering the kind of p- policies they're putting forward is offering subsidies for both owners and renters and looking at a scheme where both can, can pay and, um, trying to bring that together. So it's certainly a positive step. I think that environmental, um, policy from what we currently have and perhaps, um, from even, you know, the previous kind of labor government, um, which you know, the kind of carbon sort of um, policy as well, which isn't necessarily, you know, didn't um, fly very well with, I think, a lot of people. And, you know, this is looking to actually create, I
1: think, solutions, not just buying back our waste. Yeah, there has been some kind of uh wibble-wobbling on the environmental policy, though. You know, you mentioned there that uh Shorten made noises about... uh moving to 50% renewables by 2030 or cutting emissions by 45% of 2005 levels in the same time frame. But, you know, those couple of policy uh, tweaks were kind of announced back in November before Shadow Environment Minister Tony Burke, he's also leader of opposition business, he then said that he was not going to – that was incorrect, that it was an administrative error, that those things had been sent out to delegates – and uh you know, so he kind of poured cold water on those. So there, so there is a bit of kind of toing and froing on on these issues. I'm not sure whether they are official policy as yet. So I was hoping to talk to the Labour Environmental Action Network about. How far that came along. And I also think it's, um, it's worth talking about, you know, talking about, you know, beefing up or building a new federal EPA. There's been serious problems with the EPA here in Victoria. I mean, we've seen sites like in for- in Faulkner and the, the the ex-defense site in Maribyrnong approved for housing developments when there's deep concerns. You know, it feels like the EPA has turned into a bit of a rubber stamp organisation that seems to represent the interests of developers more than it does the interests of the community in protecting them from toxic waste. So, You know, I think another giant bureaucracy, you know, we we need to be clear that it's gonna, it's gonna work.
0: Well, I'm I'm glad we were able to have that um, discussion. Uh, You know, unfortunately,
1: without our guest, but that's okay, and it was um, good to have that. So, the opening's still there, Louise, if you ever want to uh, come on and have a chat to us about Labour Party position on these things.
0: Um, Well, we might just um, have a little quick uh, break and we'll be back uh, with our guest Leo
2: We know you love our 3CR Radical Radio t-shirts and so do we They're a bargain at $20 for adults and $15 for kids and come in black, white, grey and a cool light blue To nab one of these beauties, drop into the station at 21 Smith Street or order by phoning 9419-8377. Or you can visit us online at 3cr.org.au forward slash shop. Come on, you know you want one.
1: Listening to 3CR Monday Breakfast. The time is 7:35 a.m. and it's going to get to 22 degrees today. It's very still out there this morning. I hope it remains so. It'll be a very pleasant day. But joining us in the studio now we have Leo Sernogatchevic, who is a Year 11 student and was involved in the school strike for climate action on November 30th. He recently wrote an article for Green Left Weekly. Which hailed the end of 2018 as heralding the arrival of the newest base of the climate movement, high school students.
4: Leo, thanks for joining us in the studio. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here.
1: So, Leo, you wrote your piece that, you wrote in your piece, sorry, that the direct action of high school students has rightly superseded the centrist platforms of people like Karen Phelps. From your perspective, what is wrong with the approach of what you call the dinosaurs in Canberra, even those who claim to care about the environment?
4: Well, that's a very good question. Um, I think it's very important to acknowledge um, that the approach within Parliament, there have been two major camps uh, within that. On the one hand, you know, there's been the absolute contempt from the coalition, you know, people like Scott Morrison bringing a lump of coal into Parliament. Mm. And they have no environmental policy. But on the other hand, what's more interesting to analyse is the approach of, you know, um, people on the so-called left Uh, and the approach they have taken towards climate policy, and um, particularly with Karen Phelps and the Labor Party. And um, just from reading the analysis uh, from yesterday's first day of the Labor Party conference, um, we've seen that there has been a lack of bold action from Labor uh, with regards to climate action. I mean, you spoke earlier about their 50% renewable energy target by 2030. Frankly, that's not good enough. We need it um, as quickly as possible. But more interesting is the way that um, they have relied on market solutions to um, try and solve a problem which is inherently systemic um, to capitalism, one might say. And uh, the fact of the matter is that in a system that... Profits of the environment, that commodifies the environment, um, there's no way that one can get climate justice. And what's also important to note, that um, when we are seeking solutions to these problems, it's important to target the right people. Um, 70% of all global emiss- emissions are currently um, perpetrated by 100 of the world's largest corporations. We've also seen with the Jeux de Jean protests in France... That, um, what happens when you try and take climate action by putting the burden on working class people is that, um, a lot of problems create. So, what's important to take out is that we need real action, but in order for real action to happen, it has to come, um, it has to address the right, uh, causes of this whole crisis.
0: Leah, I wonder what, what was the feeling like in, um, you know, at school, kind of organising, uh, the protest and then, on the day itself? Like, you know, what was that kind of feeling like?
4: Well, I think it was uh, pretty extraordinary. Um, You know, I've been to many demonstrations myself, but to see one, the high school students, seeing both refreshing and exciting. Um, We don't have a lot of high school activism, unfortunately, in Australia. I think the last major high school um, action was in the 1990s when resistance organized, um, walkouts in regards to Pauline Hansen being elected. Um, certainly not to the level that France has, as we've seen high school students regularly go on strike there. So to see, um, high school students, um, protesting in the streets, um, given the fact that they don't have the right to vote, many of them yet, um, to still be involved in, um, issues that will have a fundamental impact on their future. Um, in the decades to come, uh, I think it was very important. Um, But organising the strike itself, I was sort of one of the coordinators of my school um, with regards to the strike. Uh, It was great to see that so many people cared and that so many people were willing to get involved um, in this type of action. Um, On the day itself, there was a lot of solidarity from adults. It was um, great to see all all the onlookers look in awe. And, you know, when there was 2,000 or more, as reports say, um, high school students uh, there, you know, chanting loudly, demanding change, I think it was a great great sight to see. Mm
1: -hmm. Now, you're 17, Leo. Yep. Um, I wonder how old you were when you became aware that the environment was a major issue, Uh, what your pathway to environmental activism was. Well, I've always uh, been a bit of a lefty. I joined Socialist
4: Alliance in year ten last year, and I was involved with Victorian Socialists this year, their electoral campaign. Um, but I guess I've always sort of cared about the environment. I think it comes natural, you know, if you care about um, justice and um, equality and you know a fair socio-economic system, then you know the environment naturally becomes something that's important. Um, and yeah, I guess for me, uh, it was always important to look after the environment, and being involved in environmental activism, especially with organisations such as the Australian Youth Climate Coalition, the AYCC, um, began from a you know relatively early age. So um, being involved in the environmental movement, I think, is something that should be encouraged for pretty much um, anyone on the left because uh, the environment is, you know, we only have one planet, there is no planet B, and it's important to look after it. Mm.
0: I guess, you know, thinking about some of the comments made by the political leaders, and, you know, I think in some regard when, you know, when we're protesting against the government, you don't expect positive comments from them, but Mm. I think the way in which they reacted to, um, you know, students protesting... It was embarrassing, I think, mm. and um, you know it, it set a really embarrassing and um, you know disheartening tone for people that are young people that are trying to raise their voice. How did, how did you feel about some of those comments that were made in Parliament?
4: Well, when I first saw Scott Morrison, um, you know, say that we need less activism in school, and the way he got fired up in Parliament, he, you know, as you can see. We're, we're, when a couple of things are uh, uh, mentioned to Scott Morrison, you know, like the war on Christmas and other sort of social issues, he really gets fired up. And mm. with that, um, with um, Adam Bant's question, uh, during question time, you could see that he really did get fired up. But um, on, on This is
0: a person, as you mentioned earlier, who brought coal yeah, into Parliament. Yeah, like a blue rag
4: to a bull yeah I mean it just shows how out of touch politicians are um with when literally the demands of people are to do something they frankly reject it, they're supposed to be representing us and clearly they're not um i mean this is a uh prime minister who leads a government that has no minister for the youth, no minister for the children, yet they have a minister for defense industry, you know mm. profiteering of killing people and um It wasn't surprising to be treated with that kind of contempt. Um, On the Labour side, it was also the silence on behalf of Bill Shorten was also deafening. But I think in the end, uh, what was uh, sort of useful about this is that it motivated more students to come to the strike. And in the end, um, it was good to show a bit of defiance and resistance to the Prime Minister.
1: Now, I was interested in uh, something you were right about. And you touched on it earlier about, um, you know, the link between kids walking out for uh, walking out of school for climate action and the yellow vests taking to the streets in France. And you were saying everyday working class people cannot be held responsible for the sins of corporations. There's so much reportage in the mainstream media about what individuals can do to fight climate change. Things like top ten tips to reduce your climate footprints, <laughs> reusable bottles, LED lights, aeroplane trips that cost extra so that Qantas can plant some trees. How sceptical are you of these messages and why?
4: Very, um, to put it shortly. Um, we know that climate change is a systemic problem. It's one that's at the very heart of capitalism as a socio-economic system. And to say that climate change can be averted or that we can have some meaningful environmental action by, you know, recycling just a tiny little bit more or, you know, bringing your bag, you know, a reusable bag instead of buying plastic bags. These are all very commendable actions, um, that, you know, should be taken and individuals should do what they can, um, to, I guess, be more sustainable. But, um, it is embarrassing, um, to say that this can avert the crisis that is climate change. Um, all these little tips, um, put forward in the mainstream media, um, sometimes they're just sort of blindly put forward uncritically, but sometimes there is something more sinister behind it. Um, the result of it is that they ignore um, the real cause of climate change, and that is of course greed that puts profit over planet. And um, if we don't address that fundamental contradiction that you know capitalism seeks to always expand and produce new things while at the same time destroying one of its major you know, assets, the environment, um, there can be no solutions. And the more that working class people and everyday individuals are um, blamed for this, it, it just makes me think it's, um, you know, they're blaming people for simply existing. And when people are facing rising um, costs of living, um, increasing housing stress, um, they really should not be held accountable for what um, the corporations
1: helped create and um, successive governments helped facilitate. I get really frustrated as well you know governments seem to be able to find Tens of millions, if not billions of dollars to buy, you know, questionable joint strike fighters, you know, for our growing uh, military industrial industry, you know, we can find money to support a small arms industry when we can't support other industries that mm. don't uh, result in the deaths of others, and, in, and incredible environmental impacts as well from the military in, industrial complex, uh, you know, but we can't find money for housing or for a good transition to um, to clean energy, uh, that that just doesn't seem to be able to be put together, Um You know, you are a member of Victorian Socialists, which you've mentioned. How did you come to that political position, and what role does your socialism play in your climate activism?
4: Uh, Well, um, as uh, your listeners probably be aware, uh, Victorian Socialists is an electoral alliance, a coalition of various uh, socialist parties, um, community activists, trade unionists, um, on the Victorian left and as a member of Socialist Alliance, one of the, uh, political parties evolved there. I naturally became a member of Victorian Socialist as well. And, um, I guess those beliefs, um, you know, my socialist views help, um, further my views on the environment as well because, um, the environment, like so many other things under capitalism, um, is, uh, Treated, it's it's vulnerable and it's treated as something to make um, a lot of money off of, and I think um, that approach that socialism takes to not um, prioritizing um, this narrow profiteering and protecting um, the future, and that's ultimately what socialism does. It puts forward a w- vision that you know everyone can take part in and everyone can share. Um, I think. Uh, that, uh, putting the community need over, um, uh, profits of companies such as Adani, um, goes in hand in hand in socialists and socialists, are inherently environmentalists. And if I could just make one point on, um, something I touched on earlier, um, uh, what's also interesting, um, and what's important is, um, the transition. When, when we talk about all this, um, climate action, especially in regards to coal mines, a common rebuttal is that, oh, you're against jobs and, you know, don't you uh, want the coal miners to, you know, have their livelihoods? And first of all, that's a very sneaky move to distract from the real issue. Um, Second of all, um, it is a legitimate concern and um, we have to also have just transitions and programs set in place for um, people that are affected by these changes, and I think that's an approach that the Greens haven't quite taken um, quite rightly. I think they're in, out of touch uh, with ordinary people, people like coal miners often, and um, once again, when we talk about the burden not being on working class people, that shouldn't mean that people are unemployed because of you know, us having to save the future, so um, they, you know, people should be retrained and provided with all the necessary resources um, so they can continue to provide you know effectively to society
0: one of the things that um i was involved in when i was in high school was the s11 protests and Mm. um the against the world economic forum and i think like you mentioned earlier that the kind of lead up to and the feeling there was amazing of Mm. um, being involved in something like that at at that age but one of the difficulties was kind of um, galvanizing people after that what have you since the protests have happened like what's the um kind of feeling being like at school mm. and across the network?
4: Well, the timing of the protests um, wasn't, I guess, um, the best, given that it's towards the end of the year. So, mm. you know, for me, it was literally the last day of school. So I haven't had uh, much contact with uh, my peers from school since. Uh, but what I do think is important is to uh, rem- uh, keep momentum going. Um, I saw people there at the protest from my school and from other schools that haven't, you know, being involved politically in any sense, you know, they don't really um, follow the news or, you know, give their opinions on different political issues. So to see them there, um, I think it's really inspiring to see potentially, as I wrote in my article, uh, you know, a new generation of activists. But in order for that to be um, facilitated, it needs to be maintained. So I think it was good to see um, a large high school contingent at the Stop Adani protest the other week. Um, But in order to keep this momentum going, I think that we need to continue to do a lot more outreach, that um, we need to keep uh, the momentum going, I guess, and not just in the environmental movement, but, you know, there's a lot of other causes um, with, you know, a lot of my um, high school peers are also, I also have part-time or casual jobs, so I think uh, talking about um, workers' rights and um, getting people to sign up to their union, taking action on um, things like junior rates, which are absolutely disgusting, as well as um, uh, wage theft, which is you know endemic within the hospitality and retail um, sectors. It's important to approach it from a holistic perspective so everyone can partake in a lot of different campaigns.
0: Well, it's been great to talk to you this morning, Leo um, Unfortunately, we're out of time We're going to move to the next segment But um, really appreciate coming in. Thank you very much for having me, guys uh, So we'll move on to our next segment Is Over the Wall And this week we're looking at The uh, theme of Christmas And the Catholic Church
5: Welcome to Over the Wall and one of the last episodes before our Christmas break and I'm going to reflect on the theme of Christmas in this week's episode and a bit of a story recently when I had a friend come to Melbourne took friend to the big St. Patrick's Cathedral in the city, the big Catholic Church and walked around and like many tourists person was very impressed by the huge marble ornate altars, the giant wooden carvings, the massive organ, the bits of gold trimmings, the huge wealth of the church and its decorations. The Catholic church there was full of tourists, so we spent about 20 minutes walking around looking at the, the wonderful windows, all those sort of things that tourists do. Then we took a walk across the road to St. Peter's, and St. Peter's is a much smaller church, an Anglican church, and the first thing that we noticed as we walked into the church, that about half of the pews in the church had people in sleeping bags, sleeping there during the day. So St. Peter's, a church that provides breakfasts for homeless people, also makes it's in a church, welcome for people who sleep rough at night, who often don't get much sleep at night because they don't feel safe at night. They allowed these people to come in in their sleeping bags and rest all day in that church. And it brings up that Christmas theme about the inn that wouldn't welcome anyone. I can't imagine the Catholic church across the road letting those people come in in their sleeping bags and sleep in their pews. It wouldn't impress the tourists. I'm also reflecting this week on the fact that the Catholic Church is the only one of the religious churches in Christianity to stall its payments after the Royal Commission into the abuses that came out of the church, where the other churches have come out and been proactive and already commenced their compensation process. The Catholic Church is doing nothing at all so far to compensate people, people who because of the abuses that occurred in the church have lived extremely hard lives. We know that trauma, 70% of people with a mental health condition live with a background of trauma and these are people that have experienced some of the worst traumatic experiences that you can inside the care of that church. Won't open its coffers to pay the victims of its own acknowledged abuses. So continuing on in this theme it made me think of a sketch that the comedian from the 1950s in America, Lenny Bruce, did, called Jesus and Moses. And in this sketch, Lenny started off describing the hypothetical of what would actually happen if Jesus and Moses did return. And they were walking the streets and seeing a lot of homeless people living out in the streets. And after walking, seeing this human suffering and inequality of wealth. They walked into one of the big Catholic churches and saw all the gold, all the ornate altars. And Christ starts asking the question, well, you've got all this room inside here and, and it looks very comfortable and you've got all this wealth. How come all those people, like why don't you just invite them in here? So given that set up to the sketch, let's hear from Lenny Bruce on the theme of Christ and Moses.
6: Sir, the second Sunday, Christ and Moses fly in New York, transcontinental, eighty eight dollars to Chicago, thirty dollars. Alright, All right, now let's see what they would make. They'd probably make they say, what's playing at St. Pat's? Oh, good double bill, Spellman and Sheen. Okay. Oh Mr. Spellman, oh Mr. Sheen. Okay. Now Christ and Moses are both possessed humility. Why? Wisdom. That's it. Anybody who is secure, there's never any hostility, because he's cool. Anyone who is above you, even. So they just stand on the back of St. Patrick's. And they'd listen, look around. Cardinal Spellman would be relating love and giving and forgiveness to the people. And Christ would be confused, because their route took them through Spanish Harlem. And they would wonder what 40 Puerto Ricans were doing living in one room. This guy had a ring on it, it was worth eight grand. And he would wonder at the grandeur. See, weren't the Puerto Ricans living here? It's clean and nice. What does it all mean and what? And they'd just be shucking back and forth and talking. And maybe Bishop Sheen would see them back there and run up to Spellman on the lectern. I want to talk to you for a minute. Well, you go back to the blackboard and stop bugging me now? <laughs> I'm going to talk to you. I've got a customer in the back. All right, put the choir on for ten minutes. What is it? What is it? You'll never guess who's here. Who's here? You're, gonna, you're not going to believe me. Um, you're going to think I've been drinking. All right, who's here? Christ and Moses. Are you putting me on now? I'm telling you if they're here. Are you sure it's them? Well, I've just seen them in pictures, but I'm pretty sure it's them. Uh, <laughs> Moses is a ringer for Charlton Heston, and I'm sure. Hmm. Where are they standing? In the back. Don't look now, you idiot. They can see us. Uh, uh, Christ and Moses, both of yeah, you. They're way in the back. Uh, whew, is that, did Christ bring the family? What's his mother's name? Uh, that's weird. I read the book today, too. I'm so nervous. Uh, Mary. Uh, Mary what? I don't know. Mary uh, Mary Hale? No, Uh Hail Mary, Mary, hail! Hail Mary, Harry Mary? No, I don't know what that was. Oh yeah, Hail Mary! Oh, Hail Mary, Fuller grace, Thompson. They're very thick with the Duponts on Montauk Point. But they're back here, yes. Uh, all right, that's uh, so, think If this ever gets around now, it has. Oh Christ! Don't look in the front door. The lepers are coming. All right. uh, oh yeah, uh, sir, uh, would you take the bell off, please? Thank you very much. Uh, Mr. Will you pick up your leg, madam, your nose? Thank you. I. I. uh, They got Sophie Tucker with Moses posing. Take that Hebrew national banner down. Mr. Jesse, will you get off the Madonna? That's not a stat. All right, give me a direct line to Rome, quickly, Rome. All right. Hello. John Friend in New York. Listen, a couple of kids dropped in, and, uh. Yeah, you know them. Well, I can't really talk right now. Excuse me. Hello, oh, we're from Newsweek, and we want to know if they have State Department clearance, and is that really them? Uh, well, I'm yes, it is them. Sonny, get off my hand. Yes, that is them, dear. Yes, I don't know if they're going to do any tricks today. I don't know. Yes, they can fly. No, Mary Martin isn't God's mother, and get the hell out of here now. Hello. Oh, you know them. One kid is well I'll, with a cross of bap No, not Zorro. Damn, that's right. He brought a very attractive Jewish boy with him. Oh, he got to do something. Well, I know. I can't put him up at your place. No, I didn't paint or anything. Oh, I got a lot of kids staying over here. Look, what are we paying protection for? That's right. Just get him over here. That's all. Yeah. I don't want to hear about that. Look, all I know is that we're up to our ass in crutches and wheelchairs. Is that good enough for you? The place is ridiculous here. Yeah. yeah. They're in the back. Way in the back. Of course they're white. Yeah. 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 This is New York. Puerto Ricans stand in the back. That's it. Right. I don't know. Which ones are they, Sheen? The ones that are glowing. Yeah. Jake. Yeah. Yeah. When I related to Puerto Rican, I felt like a funny thing of recall.
5: And there we have Lenny Bruce impersonating the leader of the Catholic Church dealing with the situation of Christ and Moses reappearing. And it's worth reflecting on a new story that came out of England this week about one church that is having a 24-hour-a-day, seven-day-a-week mass because they found a the loophole in the laws that prevented police entering the church during a mass. And the church is pro- protecting some refugees that are meant to be seized and deported. So it's running a 24 hour seven-day mass. That's a real church. So that's our Christmas theme for over the wall. Have a good Christmas. This is a public-
2: Our 3CR Radical Radio T-shirts, and so do we. They're a bargain at $20 for adults and $15 for kids, and come in black, white, grey, and a cool light blue. To nab one of these beauties, drop into the station at 21 Smith Street, or order by phoning 94198377. Or you can visit us online at 3cr.org.au forward slash shop. Come on, you know you want one.
0: Welcome back to Monday Breakfast on 3CR. It's currently 8.03 a.m. And right now we're joined by Zora Simic, who's a Senior Lecturer in History, Women's and Gender Studies at the University of New South Wales. Thanks a lot for joining us this morning. My pleasure, Jen. And um, you've written an article uh, which is part of the Australian Book Review, and it's looking at um, two works. One is Unfettered and Alive, a memoir by Anne Summers, and Jermaine, The Life of Jermaine Greer. Um, and I guess, you know, these are two very kind of influential figures in feminism, um, I think globally as well, but, you know, I think particularly in Australia. Um, what were the, uh, you know, they've kind of been put together in a lot of ways, but, you know, they're quite different in their kind of, um, take on, on feminist politics and as individuals themselves. Like, what, what, what were your takeaways from these books?
7: Oh, a lot. I mean, it's, it's really interesting that they've both been published at the same time but um, kind of invites this comparison, which I'd actually never really thought about much before. And mm. after reading them, I thought I really should have. They're both sort of emerging on the feminist scene in Australia at the same time uh, and have much in common, both Anne Summers and Germaine Greer. They both started out as scholars. Uh, you know, they were both sort of very interested in women's liberation as opposed to you know, old school feminism, as it was the dichotomy existed at the time. Um, but their careers have gone in, in quite different directions as well. I mean, Anne Summers, if we can think of Jermaine Greer as a kind of propagandist. She, she's someone that writes and res- to, to a mainstream audience and it resonates with the so-called ordinary woman. Whereas Anne Summers has been very involved in, you know, activism, women's bureaucracy, uh, also written books that, that, that resonate with, with, with mainstream readers as well. But, but yes, their ideas of how feminism works in the world, I think, quite different as well. mm. And some of is very interested in campaigns and issues and and so on and kind of adapts with, with those things, gathers new evidence about women's lives, working lives the whole thing. Whereas Jermaine I think is <laughs> maintained a kind of idiosyncratic take on things. Waxing and waning as a public figure. But never going away. <laughs> I I was struck reading both of these books just how much
0: they've both done and how much their careers are
7: almost half
0: a century long Mm. amazing and I guess you know I think the female eunuch which you know um, was Germaine Greer's kind of you know first real um, groundbreaking kind of book um, on the scene and you know it was a real kind of call to arms for that second wave feminism and um, you know, I think still reading it today, it, uh, is, you know, very revolutionary in the sense of, um, you know, the kind of things that it's arguing for. How do you kind of, um, put that with, I guess, Greer's more, um, you know, take on things at the moment and, you know, very kind of controversial kind of take, I guess, um, certainly around trans rights and things like that? Which, and you know, of
7: course, on a latter point, her, her, her opinions on, trans issues, and they're very much opinions because they're not based in much of research or, or, or knowledge of, of trans people or experience. Um, in, in, in lots of ways, there are differences between the as like, female unique and the Germain today is quite a scattergun and has lots to say about all sorts of things, some of which she knows a lot about, some of which she doesn't know a lot about. It uh, seems very different, but at the same time, her, her mode has always been... An interesting mix of kind of polemic um, and informed knowledge about things, and I, I and I think we still see that in in the contemporary Germaine. Um But I, in the last you know 45 years or whatever since Female um, unique was published, she's become a media celebrity. So she, uh, you know, is, is given you know many platforms to sprout her views. And I think in any Germaine interview that you see, she'll always have something very interesting to say and something outrageous to say. And of course, it's the outrageous often offensive thing that gets the most traction, understandably, um, very click-baited. don't know if that's her intention. I think mm. this has just always been the way she is. If you put a microphone in front of Jim Angry, she's going to say a whole bunch of things, some which she's said before and refines and repolishes and others which she just goes off the cuff. So I think that, there's, that there has been a, a remarkable consistency in her public persona, which is she likes to provoke, and sometimes she does that, I think, to the great good, it, Leads to lots of you know, instant light bulb moments for many people who have read her work or listened to her talk. And other times it's just unsettling, offensive, and not really useful to, to the public debate. But I think all of that has been there, become perhaps more pronounced in recent years as I think she becomes more out of touch
2: mm-hmm. on
7: some issues. But yeah, there is, there is some innate urbaneness <laughs> of the disrespect there.
0: And I think you know Anne Summers, like you mentioned before, is I guess has played a a key role in uh, you know policy development and um, you know helping to shape some you know labor governments and things like that. In uh, I guess more of a kind of behind the scenes role in a lot of ways. Um, but you know, so perhaps is not as well known p- uh, publicly as as jermaine is. But I think that the kind of role that she's played is nonetheless kind of as significant. Um, in terms of, yeah, with the, um, I think, the Hawke and Keating governments and, you know, advising um, government and government policy and also as a a time as a a journalist in Canberra as well.
7: Well, her life is just incredible. I mean, no one could ever be as well known as Jermaine Greer. In terms of international celebrity, she's in that sort of upper echelon. And some of of her cohort in Australia, and she's someone that, you know, worked overseas in the States as well as Australia, but the, you know, the, the majority of her career has been in Australia. She's probably the most well-known and in, in, influential of her kind of generation. Um, but at the same time, I was struck reading this book, just how much she had done. I mean, I think it's a terrific book. It's the standard in the, review in the ABR. She's a real work of social and political history. She's been right in the thick of lots of different things. Um, and she's, I mean, her life is just... And she, again, is, is singular in a way that Jermaine Greer is as well. There is, I mean, one thing that is commented on about both women is that you know, they, they didn't have children, they had incredible opportunities to self-education, education, travel the world, getting involved in meeting all different sorts of people and becoming influential figures themselves. But I, I think with Anne Summers, she's always... Um, in her book, she, she just talks about these, these opportunities appearing in they kind of seizing the moment and um, just really taking these moments seriously. And as, as a result of that, has had a real enormous influence and, and impact, I think, on Australian public life. I mean, just this last weekend, she wrote a really interesting column about the lack of policies in a contemporary Australian political life. So I think she's just somebody that really wants to stay on top of things. She has that journalist interest in researching things and getting the facts and figures right and trying to make a positive intervention. She's, her sort of toolbox of things that she uses to influence public debate quite different from Germaine Greer's but I think in some ways they've been much more effective without being so you know, in your face.
0: What do you think, I guess, um, you know, I think for Jermaine, a lot of her um, time, you know, she's spent outside of Australia and I think that she's commented that um, you know, the kind of controversy that she has in Australia she doesn't have elsewhere that she, you know, described that as something that's kind of unique about um Australian culture, not being able to, like, take those things on. And I guess for Anne that, um, you know, said that she has a lot of the roles that she's had have perhaps not been as kind of in the limelight as, you know, perhaps she would have had in another country. What do you think about that kind of, you know, are, are we not as um welcoming as celebrity kind of thinkers in that kind of way?
7: a really interesting question. I think Germaine, she's she's one of those you know expats that left Australia at the time where they thought it was a moribund place, and I think there was a the, the cultural cringe comes in there. I think that the, the time she went away was the time that sort of Australia sort of flourished culturally and politically, so she kind of missed all that by not being here. Whereas Anne Summers was you know, sort of in the zeitgeist when it came to kind of Australia sort of opening up society in the 1970s. So I think that the, the, the anti germaine stuff, or a kind of a section ambivalent. I guess, has its roots in her moving away from Australia and an expat, often commenting from a distance about Australian culture. Um, but at the same time, I think over the years, she seems to become, just as an observer, she seems to become more Australian when she's in Australia. She might. And she has commented in the past of how even writing The Female Eunuch, she kind of wrote it with an Australian audience in mind, that she needed to make it a kind of salty book <laughs> because... That was the sort of person she thought she needed to get through to. Um, so I think her kind of audaciousness and something is something that Australians sometimes embrace as a positive feature and other times sort of reject her. And there is the tall poppy syndrome, the cult- cultural cringe. She's someone that you can apply all of that stuff to. So I think there is something in, in that when she says that. But at the same time, I think she's become equally as controversial in England where she now lives mm-hmm. um, as well.
0: And, and in your work, um, how do you find that students react to, um, you know, both the work of, of Greer and Summers?
7: Particularly um, different. I've been teaching Ann Summers as someone who wrote Down Towards and God's Police, which came yep. out in 1975, considered the first work of Australian history. Um, so everyone's really curious about that. A lot of students have never heard of it and are very interested to know what it's about. Um, whereas... Jermaine, uh, everyone comes with knowledge about Jermaine prior to being taught about her <laughs> and often very negative, of course, because, you know, in, in, in the current sort of feminist climate, she's understandably kind of a, you know, there's a, there's a lot to be critical of. So that is where they come from. So I enjoyed you know, teaching them about female eunuch and, you know, feminist history through that way to understand her original impact and why she's still here Um but yes, she's, <laughs> she doesn't actually come up that much in, in terms of like teaching gender studies and so on as something that you would set on the curriculum. She's more now an object of study rather than uh, you know, somebody that you would set as a crucial text. There's always so much known about it.
0: Mm. And I guess, you know, I think it is difficult to put the um, context of someone's previous work, you know, within the context of things that they're saying now. But, you know, I think there's still, you know, significant... Um, you know, things to read and to think about in that kind of, um, in that second wave feminism
7: as well. Absolutely. There's the Jermaine Greer archive now. It's got 500 boxes and scholarships starting to come out about what they found in there. So it's a fascinating period to kind of talk about both of these films, I
0: think. So these um, both could be, uh you know, perhaps some summaries for people to check out. Um, okay. Something you would recommend that um, people can... Um, Check out over yeah,
2: summer.
7: Definitely, particularly the Anne Summers memoir. I think it's a great read. It's got so much in it. I, I, you know, I thought I knew a lot of this stuff and I didn't. she's just so much to say about feminist publishing, feminist thought, and all sorts of things, not just, not just Australian politics as well. The Jermaine Greer biography is a, is a, is a fun read. There's, I was surprised by some of the things that left out, but it's still, you know, a very great introduction to Jermaine Greer if people don't know it enough about her historically. I mean, seen her in a contemporary
0: moment. And I think in the article we mentioned, there's a, um, Anne Summers has a previous memoir as well, and this is a continuation of that. Is so, that, sorry.
7: Yeah, Ducks in the Pond, which was her book about growing up in Australia and becoming a feminist and joining the liberation, which is a terrific read as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, but you don't need to have read that one to have read this one. It's very much a standalone book about you know, where her life took her from, from 1975 onwards
0: well, yeah, I I think um, you know they it is um yeah both both great reads, but um I would also encourage people to check out your article as well because it it talks about um you know some of the things we touched on today and a, I guess a combination of the these two um, icons in Australian feminism and their kind of um, history together in country and um, yeah certainly some history that I think you know we should all all know about and. <laughs> thanks, James. Well, um, thanks a lot for joining us this morning. I really appreciate coming on. Um, and, uh, yeah, hopefully have got That's some great. more summer reads ready for your um, summer. I <laughs>
7: These are the biggest books I read this year. So they're hard covers. I'm going for to paperback. <laughs> uh, cool. Thank you.
0: All right. Well, um, thanks a lot. And um, Okay. Cheers. Bye, Jane. Bye. Well, um, and we've just um, got a couple more minutes of, our, um, of this uh, segment. We're going to um, be crossing right now to a, a really, um, I think, important interview um, for some things that are happening at the moment. And um, so we've got on the line now, we've got um, lawyer um, Lizzie O'Shea, who's going to be um, joining us. So thanks a lot, Lizzie, for chatting to us this morning.
3: Thanks for having me on.
0: Now um we it's a, a bit of a delicate topic um, what we're talking about this morning. Um, so I might just start by um, just giving a broad sort of um, stroke about some of the things that we're talking about and then um, get into uh, some questions. So a suppression order um, has been issued by the Victorian County Court earlier this year and th- which imply applies in all Australian states and territories. And has prevented any publication of the details of a high profile case, including the person's name or the charges. Um, so we are not going to talk about that this morning, but what we are going to talk about is what, what is a suppression order? Um, and, uh, Lizzie has been kind enough to, um, join us to kind of go through some of those, um, you know, more, I guess more factual kind of questions about what the legal, um, Ramifications and issues are for suppression orders. So maybe, um, you know, to start with Lizzie, if you wanted to let us know, the listeners know, like, what a suppression order is.
3: Sure. So in certain situations, courts are able to make orders to prevent the publication of the name of the person accused of a certain offence, for example, or the victim who might be making the complaint in relation to the offence, as well as details of the charge itself or the, um, <clears throat> the nature of the trial that's going to take place shortly thereafter. And this varies across the country and some are more... Um, uh, powerful than others and some place restrictions earlier than others as well. Um, There's a real tension here because uh, people feel, uh, I think, upset that they can't know more about what is going on in perhaps what might be a very high-profile trial or or, uh, conviction and there's a sense that open justice is an important principle So the idea that justice is seen to be done, that we need to know the details of offences for public safety purposes as well as accountability purposes uh, and the outcome of trials for the same reason. Fitting in contrast with that is the needs of the people who are involved in the process. So that might be the uh, person accused or convicted of the offence, but it may well also be the victim who uh, does not want their name disclosed. Um, Perhaps more significantly, I think, and something that's often missing from this debate, is that there's a tension, I think, between open justice and the administration of justice. So one of the key reasons why a suppression order might be ordered is um, because it may jeopardise the jury pool for future uh, trials in relation to um, the same defendant, or um, or similar fact And that's a very important principle. So we uh, are judged by our peers, uh, by a jury that's selected, and they um, are required to consider the evidence put before them. And only in certain circumstances can they know about what might have uh, been associated with the accused, for example, in the past. And if we pollute the jury pool through the extensive dissemination of material about the person, perhaps accused of an offence, that can mean that it's very difficult to have a fair trial. Uh, And it can mean also that the prosecution can. can successfully, excuse me, the defence can successfully apply for a permanent stay on the basis that the jury pool wouldn't be able to come to a fair finding and that there would be an unsafe um, conviction if there was one that was recorded. Uh, So there's a couple of different tensions there, I think, between the very legitimate claims of open justice and the very legitimate reasons to protect the administration of justice in the individual case.
0: And how do you think, you know, obviously we live in a social media age and... You know the way that um, people are, people can share things online. The way that people post things is quite different to, you know, I think when, you know, the these kind of orders may have been applied in the past, and certainly, um, you know, it is different to say how a, a newspaper can report something or other media outlets. How do you think that um, the social media will play, does play a part in these kind of orders?
3: yeah well, I think part of the ridiculous nature of the situation is that social media has been awash with the um conviction that's been the subject of the suppression order recently and 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 legacy media or um traditional newspapers et cetera have been prevented or they're complying with the um With a suppression order, and one wonders whether there's much uh, utility in a suppression order in that context. Uh, I think the general presumption I I can see some value in is that uh, social media is quite different to traditional media outlets in that um, uh, they survive less. Social media posts survive less well in 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 search engines. Uh, Legacy media has a far broader reach than social media, Uh, and and it means that you know you can then have a, a Somewhat in, indelible record, I suppose, of someone's past uh, through a very simple Google search. So I think there is some utility in the argument that uh, social media is slightly different to traditional media outlets because the reach is different and the way in which it's recorded for posterity is also different. Um, so I, 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 well, I appreciate that, that it might seem somewhat absurd to have. Uh, social media are awash with uh, discussions uh, that violate a suppression order. I can also understand why it is critical that in certain contexts, um, legacy media is prevented from reporting on it. I would point out that I was talking a bit about, about before about how they're different in different states. And one thing I, when I was doing some research on this that I found out was that um, Victoria accounts for probably about half of all suppression orders nationally and in 2017 there were 450 of them issued in Victoria uh, and the next closest was South Australia with 117 Uh, so that's quite a significant uh, number of suppression orders coming out of Victoria and I do think there is probably a need to reassess the balance of when these are made and the circumstances in which they are and whether there's a way to challenge them on the basis of open justice principles. And we have had a review into this relevant piece of legislation, which was due to be uh, implemented in legislative reform, uh, just before the last election, but the, um, the Andrews Labor government didn't prioritise it as a piece of reform so it hasn't happened. And I think that will modernise some of the issues uh, around these kinds of orders and also give people reasons so they understand why those orders are made and give also victims more power to um, ask that they be revoked. So things like that. So I think there is a need to, to modernise uh, these laws, but uh, I can also see an argument that there still remains quite a powerful pull uh, by traditional media outlets as compared to social media.
1: Lizzie, can I ask, if there were uh, a case that were under a suppression order that had global interest, um, is it possible that Defence could uh, request a stay or uh, make an appeal based on international reportage on the story?
3: Uh, well, I mean... I. It's it's difficult to say, but it it depends on degree and to the extent to which uh, you can argue or the defence can argue that the jury pool is um, so polluted that it's impossible to give the uh, accused a fair trial. Uh, In some states, the way that they solve that is by allowing a judge to be the uh, arbiter of the person's guilt or um, lack thereof. Mm. Uh, But in Victoria, we have juries only. And I I understand the desire to put a judge in charge because there's... that a judge will be less inclined to be uh, um, swayed by cut media coverage is uh, trained to to uh, work out how to value some uh, evidence that's put before them and discard other stuff that isn't put before them or is, in pro- is properly excluded from the process. But I also think it's really important to protect the jury system actually. I think the jury system works really well and I think juries cop a lot of bad press for, um, usually I think from a somewhat elitist perspective that they're not uh, equipped to do the difficult work of pining upon um, someone's uh, criminality. And I-, I don't know if that's true. I think we do. Need- to improve how jurors are trained and, and things like that and help them come to terms with um, what might be a very tempting situation to look up a, an accused past history using um, the internet. But, mm. you know, they have to actually be taught the importance of making a decision on the facts presented to them and that there's good reasons why we might exclude evidence that's come before or convictions that might have come before. Uh, And so that training, I think, needs to happen, but I think we should aim to preserve um, the jury process and not necessarily just assume that putting a judge in place will fix the issue, uh, But I think, yeah, there's an argument that I think a prosecution... Uh, sorry, a defence could make. Excuse me, I'm getting my prosecution <laughs> sense mixed up. Uh, there's an argument that the defence could make that if there was significant international coverage that that would pollute the jury pool. But we do know that in this case, for example, there's been geo- restrictions on who can be what, which is obviously one way in which we can avoid that problem arising.
0: Well, I think in the United States um, we see, you know, kind of these... Gag orders, I think you're often referred to in the US, but they usually only apply to kind of government organisations. I think the FBI or, you know, things like the um, anti-terror legislation and Mm. the um, Guantanamo um, people who were locked up in Guantanamo, those things are all under a kind of gag order. Um, But I don't think, do they have a, uh, you know, kind of suppression order kind of thing in the United States? And I guess, you know, why is it um, more prevalent in Australia?
3: Uh, I think there's probably a variety of reasons, although you're raising a lot of different complex issues, which I think are important to think about in this context. Uh, The first thing I suppose I would say is that as a general principle, the United States has protection of freedom of speech in the way that the Australian uh, people do not. So we don't have a Bill of Rights. We're the only uh, Western jurisdiction not to. uh, And I think that does mean that we sit apart from lots of our counterparts globally in terms of how we understand things like freedom of speech, protection of privacy and how we weigh those things up uh, legally over time for the proper uh, respect of them. So that's the first thing I suppose I'd say. But I think you're right to point out that sometimes we treat some information as sacred and secret and there's lots of instances where we don't. Uh, So while I think secrecy around criminal trials, uh, people can get very upset about it. They get upset about suppression orders and they feel that it's very unfair that someone very high profile is able to feel what uh, has come of their criminal justice process I I think it's important to remember that it's not just about embarrassment, there's other reasons as well but what I would say is there's a huge amount of information that's kept very much secret um, that protects other kinds of power structures, uh, most notably you were raising the issue of, um, China terrorist, uh, intelligence agencies, uh, national security agencies generally who enjoy significant protections of, uh, their identity and, um, and protection from accountability in all sorts of ways, um, and that information, uh, about these kinds of activities and, um, and uh, agencies is excluded from the public domain. So the Public Interest Disclosure Act, for example, which is a federal act, excludes intelligence information, which I think is significant. So you can know something terrible is happening in an intelligence agency, and you don't have a proper avenue for uh, disclosing it. That, I think, is quite a significant problem for democracy, but it rarely gets the kind of attention that is usually heaped upon the kind of um, suppression order we've just seen being covered or not covered in the press. So in terms of how we have open justice, accountability as power, um, and the role that courts play, I think there's bigger issues than suppression orders and criminal trials uh, that we need to be focusing on, and I think you're right to raise it.
0: Well, Lizzie, uh, unfortunately that's all the time we've got for this morning, but we really, really appreciate coming on and um, shedding some light on what's a really important but uh, difficult topic to talk about.
3: Oh, thanks for having me on.
0: Well, um, we have been. Uh, well, you've been listening to uh, 3CR Monday Breakfast. We have been Monday Breakfast, and the next is uh, shows Women on the Line. And uh, we hope you enjoy the rest of your day.
3: Have a nice festive... 3CR relies on the support of ethical organisations to keep our vital community of voices on air. We'd like to thank our breakfast supporters, the new international bookshop, Nibs, at Trades Hall, and eco-friendly paper and printing outfit, Earth Greetings. You can check them out at nibs.org.au and earthgreetings.com.au. And if you'd like more information on how your organisation can become a 3CR supporter, contact the station on 03 9419 8377.